Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies speaker series on public health. You're listening to a bonus episode of highlights from our in-person Vital Talks live event in New York City. The name of this event was Can Data End Gender-Based Violence? After you listen, you can watch the full event at vitalstrategies.org slash vitaltalks. Also, if you're in the New York City area and interested in knowing about future in-person events that include both topical roundtable discussions with leading experts and light social and networking hour at our offices, or you just want to know about future episodes, sign up to stay informed at vitalstrategies.org slash vitalnews. Let's give today's episode a listen. A very warm welcome. My name is Shakuntala Santharan, Shaks for short, and I will be your host this evening. We begin this Vital Talks event with a question, a key question. Can data end gender-based violence? One in three women worldwide has been subjected to physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. One in three women, which means it's highly likely that all of us here either know someone or we might have been subjected to this violence ourselves. It is an alarming statistic that barely scratches the surface of this global atrocity. Even the best estimates of gender-based violence likely fail to capture the true extent of this problem. This insufficient, incomplete evidence hampers efforts to address this violence, and it poses a life-threatening risk to an unknown number of people who need better protection. Our speakers who are with us this evening are using innovative data and uh, advocacy to help bring this problem out of the shadows and into the public eye. They're helping to shed light on the true burden, galvanize action, and measure the impact of our solutions. We begin with opening remarks from uh, Fatima Mourinho de Souza, who is the principal advisor of a technical advisor of women's health and gender equity at Vital Strategies. Fatima. Thank you, Sachs, for this warm welcome. Good evening, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here with you to debate gender-based violence, a big challenge for public policy. GBV is a public health problem with high prevalence. Various forms of gender-based violence include physical, sexual, and psychological abuse from intimate partners, sexual violence by non-partners, sexual abuse of girls, and trafficking of women for sex. The most persistent form of gender violence is the abuse of women by intimate male partners. Women suffer violent death through homicide, suicide, maternal disorders, and HIV AIDS. Vital strategy works to strengthen public health systems. This system can play a fundamental role in preventing and responding to gender-based violence. We analyze public health data to identify missed opportunities for health services in addressing violence and predictors for femicide at all, and all types of domestic violence. 
make full use of the data that generate evidence about the magnitude of gender-based violence. These data are essential to inform public health policies and support intersectoral policies to prevent violence. Empower women and girls. Data for action. And it should be fast. We must take action when life is threatening. Vital Strategies is committed to supporting countries to end GBV. We stand with women and girls in solidarity and must work together to eradicate all forms of violence. Let us build a society where every person, regardless of gender, can live free from fear and harm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Fatima, for setting the stage for our conversation. Let's now welcome our expert panel to come up here and join me, please. Uh, we have with us this evening Marcia Lima, who is the National Secretary of Policies for Affirmative Action and Fighting and Overcoming Racism at the Ministry of Racial Equality of Brazil. Erin Leisure, who is Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights Specialist at the International Center for Research on Women. And Leila Milani, who is Program Director of Global Policy and Advocacy for Futures Without Violence. And last but not least, Roxana Jinnah, who is Director of the Data Impact Program at Vital Strategies. Thank you all so very much for being here with us. So as Fatima was saying, there are many different forms of gender-based violence, including violence against men and boys, although women and girls are disproportionately affected. Here's a question for all of you. Gender-based violence is drastically underreported. Why is that? Is there a culture of silence around GBV? If we could start with you, please, Rati. I often think about the barriers in like sort of three layers. I think about the individual, um, and often it's the factors around stigma and whether the woman would be persecuted if she then reports it. The second is looking at the relationship with the perpetrator. Often we see it's the intimate partner, you know, who's perpetrating it, and what's her relationship with that partner. In children, we often see grooming, and so children don't recognize that as a form of violence as well. And then we see the structural and societal barriers, as we mentioned, the cultural issues, but also do they have access to services? Do they have ways of reporting it? I think another important aspect for me is uh, this issue around reporting and linking reporting to services. I so this is a very personal story. I'm from South Africa. And the only way you could access medical care for after rape is if you actually reported it to the police. And so, you know, that women wouldn't want to follow that pathway of, of reporting a case because often they wouldn't see the potential of having any outcome. You know, looking at how many cases actually go to court, how many cases are actually prosecuted. And so you, you wouldn't report cases, but then it also then limits your access to medical care. So trying to think about how the systems are organized can also influence the reporting. Thanks. Or lack of it. Or lack of it. Leila, what are your thoughts? Well, I wanted to touch base on the power of the data and what's missing in that story. And um, I, I do policy advocacy, so I tell the stories to members of Congress or the U.S. government to try to bring about the change. And 
So just in the opening sentence in the program, it starts with one in three women experience some form of um, gender-based violence, sexual violence during their lifetime. So with that data point, what other story are we telling? Do we even know the rest of the story? Do we know everything you just mentioned is not captured in that data point, which is what are the laws of countries uh, in terms of responding to a woman who um, reports it? What are the cultural barriers to women reporting or girls reporting? What are the... Um, what are the customary practices in a community when a girl or a woman has been exposed to violence or sexual assault, which is even worse? Our data points will give us that one in three, but they won't give us all the other barriers in society. And that right there gives you a picture of how the missing data can cut the narrative, can cut the conversation in terms of solutions and advocacy for, for things that need to happen. Masya. Tell us, how important is data in informing policies at the ministerial level? For me, it's impossible to think about public policies without evidence. So we need public policy based on evidence. It's the most effective way to improve social problems and public policies. So, for example, the gender violence is increasing or decreasing. How can I answer this question without data? Uh, how to identify the impact of some measures about gender violence. For example, in Brazil, we have the Maria da Penha law. It's a, a very important law against domestic violence in Brazil. And with data, we can identify this law is more effective for white women than for black women. Uh, the investment in data collection and the techniques is a very important. And, and that's the reason I'm very, very excited with the vital strategies research because the quality of the methodology is it's amazing, but also they start to use a qualitative method to understand what's happening. So when we talk about a public policy based on evidence, not about numbers, quantitative research, we can specifically when we talk about gender violence, it's very important we look at the experiences. So the collection, the, the, the data about violence can be quantitative data, but also qualitative data. And I think it's very, very important. That's the reason it's so, so important for us uh, in the government, look at this data and take decisions, look at this data. So that's my point. Uh, technology facilitated uh, gender-based violence is something that is an increasing public health and human rights issue crisis, really. And it actually wasn't until I did research for this conversation that I realized I've been uh, subjected to technology-facilitated GBV in the form of sexual harassment uh, online via anonymous emails. Erin, you doing research on this, uh, you know, it's a really wide-ranging topic. And how do you even begin to find or collect data on, on, on this? How do you define this? Yeah, so most of the work that I've done at ICRW has been on, on tech-facilitated gender-based violence, which is a term my colleague, Laura Henson, 
and her team um, coined in 2018 in this initial research they did in India and Uganda, and they developed a framework that looked at the issue more holistically. So not the why, not only the why and the how, and the relationship between the perp and the victim, but the context in which that violence took place, the impacts on the victim, and the help-seeking behaviors that that come out of that. And so COVID really exasperated the issue. You know, we are we're becoming more online. We're doing all of our social activities online. Um, and so the violence just really was exasperated. And and I think the underlying causes of tech-facilitated GBV are, are pretty similar to that of of in-person GBV with some additional factors. Uh, one, your digital space, much wider, much broader than your physical space. When you experience in-person GBV, the person, whether you know them or not, they have to be around you. They have to be in your space. And that is just not the case with tech-facilitated GBV. You can have people in your community, in your school, in your workplace, your friends, your family perpetrate violence against you online in um, on digital technologies through your phone, um, but they don't have to. It can be someone around the world. Um, and the vastness and the connectedness and often impersonal nature of tech violence just really decreases the barrier to entry for people to perpetrate violence. Thank you so very much, ladies, for your vital insights into how important a piece data plays in the solution. Thank you for your commitment to public health and for helping to create a healthier, more equitable world for us all. Thank you also to our audience for your participation. Let's now welcome to the podium. Um, Sharon Kim Gibbons, who is Vice President of Vital Strategies Public Health Programs, to give us her closing thoughts. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Shax, Marcia, Aaron, Layla, and Roxy for sharing your wisdom and your experience with all of us. And of course, for representing the work of so many of our colleagues and their teams, because none of us do this work alone. So back to that question, can data end gender-based violence? And I would say, collectively, we've all agreed that it's a yes, but it's a highly conditional yes. I think we would say that if that is good quality data, is it complete, is it accurate, is it consistent, makes a big difference. And we know that we can learn so much from what the trends can show us, right? So if we watch this data, we look at it, we study and analyze it over time, we can learn a lot about different social conditions that are contributing and underlying and driving the gender-based violence. So I would say we must forge ahead and continue to do what we're all doing, fight the fight, share our knowledge and learning, and um, hopefully we can minimize this terrible, life-threatening situation for so many of our colleagues, friends, and communities. Um, so with that, you know, again, I wish I could wrap up everything in a nice little bow and say we figured it out and we have the answers, but we don't. So I'll just say, you know, again, as public health practitioners, we forge ahead, we use what we have, we continue to try and improve, along the way, and hopefully we have a positive impact on, on our populations. 